Let's pray and then we'll dive into tonight's lesson. Father, thank you for uh, a new night to discuss and to discover more of your character. We thank you that you are a God who has made yourself known to us so that we can uh, understand you. Certainly, as we've learned, we can't understand you fully or exhaustively, but we can um, know you. And not just know facts about you, but know you in an intimate, relational way. So we thank you that you've allowed that um, to be a privilege and a grace to us. I pray that you would help us as we look at Scripture, that we would bind our our minds and our hearts around the truth that you've revealed about yourself, not our own making uh, and ideas of you. So help us tonight as we consider your sovereignty over everything, that we would um, have open minds and open hearts to see what your word says, not what man has said, and that we would walk away um, glorying in your character and your goodness. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so our goal tonight is to discover what it means that God is sovereign and why it matters in our relationship with him. What it means that God is sovereign and why it matters in our relationship to Him. And I want to try to be careful to set this in the context of our relationship with Him. Because conversations about God's sovereignty can very quickly become academic, can very quickly become uh, intense, can very quickly separate and get heated and get personal and so my desire is to be is to be sensitive um, to the fact that some of you might not be naturally like me and I'm not suggesting that being naturally like me is the best way but I tend to be someone who is very okay with tensions and some people are struggle very much with tensions in scripture and so I want to be sensitive to that recognizing that I'm no better than you that I don't get worked up about that Um, because these are real tensions and no one has the perfect answer other than God. So I don't want to stand here and suggest that I know everything about how God works um, because I would be a liar. (laughs) Um, And I would be contrary to Scripture if I said that. So what I'd like to do is walk through and connect it to our relationship with Him and end on that note trying to commend God's sovereignty to you rather than it be such a toxic uh, doctrine to discuss. So first off, what does it mean when we say that God is sovereign? So if my son came to you and said, Papa, I heard this word, sovereign. What does that mean? In control. Okay. Infallible. What do you mean by that? <clears throat> he makes no mistakes. Okay. He's in control of all things. Okay, so he's in control of all things. Perfectly. Perfectly. He doesn't make mistakes. Okay. He can do what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. Okay. I like that. He can do what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. Okay, let me give you 
a definition. I'm not suggesting that this is the best, but this is the one we're going to at least use for our discussion tonight. Simply this, God is in complete control of everything. When we say that God is sovereign, we're saying that God is in complete control of everything. And there's a lot to tease out there, but I think that if we just leave it at, this is just the most simple, bare-bones thing that we can get. God is in complete control of everything. So if my five-year-old son came to you and said, Hey, I learned that God is sovereign. He's in complete control of everything. What text would you use from Scripture to support that statement? Okay. I know the plans I have for you to prosper you, to give you hope in a future. Not to something like that. Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. Sally basically was quoting a verse nearly. I mean, she was it was a Sally paraphrase. Um, but have you ever heard the verse our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases? That's Psalm 15:3. I mean, that, that's kind of a hard one to argue around, or skirt around, right? Our God is in the heavens. I think there was even a Christian rap song that like quoted that from a guy named Shylin, who, like, the song was, Our God is in the heavens. And then it would just go on to his okay. rap, and I'm like, No, not Kanye West. Christian rapper. Christian rapper. Shylin. I won't. Yeah. That's, that's Lecrae. Pastor Matt was the guy who loved the Christian rap. I'm not so much into that, so he is just. No, I've been to one of his concerts though, and Mallory got wet. They threw water bottles out in the. Anyway, whatever. We're not going there. So here we go. Jeremiah. What about uh, Genesis one one? In the beginning, what happened? God created. I mean, that, that's a good place to start, right? I mean, if God is the creator of all things, and I'm, we're not going to get into Romans nine right now, but if you were to read Romans nine, I mean, the whole the, the whole thrust of Romans nine, God can do what He pleases with whom He wants, and the the basis of that is He's the Potter, He's the Creator, He gets to choose, He can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy on. Psalm 135, 5 and 6, I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases Him in the heavens and on the earth, in the sea is in all their depths. Proverbs 16, 4, The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. One of our most often cited text so far this semester has been Romans eleven thirty three through 36 Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and His paths, paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? The answer is no one, because He's sovereign. Listen to this extended 
text from Isaiah chapter 40. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Now listen to the description of the here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Do you get the, the picture that, that Isaiah is painting? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust in the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altars, altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Behold, that's our God. He is sovereign. For what purpose or what purposes does God completely control everything? Okay, His glory. So we we could look at Ephesians chapter 1. I won't read that one because that's kind of long. Sorry, I thought of another 
passage that's a good word picture for me, and that's Isaiah 64 8. Okay. Clay. Okay. He's the potter, he can do whatever he wants. The clay doesn't tell the potter what to do. Okay. That's definitely a good one. The potter's the one that receives the glory for his creation. Isaiah 64 8. Okay. I wonder if that's what Paul picks up on in Romans 9, because he uses the analogy of the potter and the clay there. I wonder if. I don't have it in my mind if he was citing Isaiah 64, but I wonder if he was. So. His first and foremost obligation is to what? Himself, his own glory, right? Is there anything else that God obligates himself to? In all his sovereign activity. So first and foremost, he obligates himself to working out everything, controlling everything for his glory, right? But he also says in Romans 8.28 that Everything that's happening is also doing what? It's for the good of who? His people. Those who love him. Those who are called according to his purpose. So he first obligates himself to his own glory. And that's just inherent in his character. But God, out of his own grace and kindness, obligates himself to his people. Those who are the redeemed. Right? Those who are his by faith people. He obligates to orchestrate everything that happens for His glory and our good, the good of His people. What is the good of His people? That is not defined by us, right? We don't get to define what good is. Good is defined by what God says, and God says that our good is Christ-likeness, right? Our spiritual maturity, our sanctification. So we could look at texts like Romans 8.28. We could look at texts like Philippians 1.6 or Philippians 2.13 where it says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Right? God is the one who is doing a good work. 2.13 says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to do what? To fulfill his good purpose. Right? So God is constantly at work. Everything that's happening is orchestrated for His glory and our good. We need to keep those things in mind. So what's the purpose, then, of God in complete control of everything? It's for Him to receive glory and for the good of His people. But, there's an undeniable tension that exists, right? All of us, probably, to some degree or another, feel it, don't we? That tension, like, okay, so you're telling me, and Scripture seems to be telling me that God is in control of everything. He does whatever He pleases. So, thinking early on in Genesis, there's this little snake thing. It came and whispered some stuff. And Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Hmm. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And enrolls Satan. How does that one work out? Hmm. 
Anyone? Okay. It helps to exhibit other portions of his character. Okay. His character like love. How would we fully understand that without understanding some of the <clears throat> negatives that come with sin? Right. So basically what you're saying is how did sin enter if a perfect and holy God created everything perfect? An all-sovereign God. How can a God who created everything, who is in control of everything, how did sin enter the world without him ordaining sin to come into the world? And then we sit there and we scratch our head and we're like, huh. I have no idea. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But we can say some things, but we can't. If I were to stand up here and give you a satisfying answer, you should stone me. Because I can't. But what I can say is that, well, we know for certain that that God is clearly revealed to us for instance, in James chapter 1, that he can't sin, nor can he tempt anyone to sin, right? We also know that God does everything for his glory. So, if that's the case, then as Pete said, we have to say something to the effect that God saw fit to allow sin into his created order to expose his glory in a greater way that would otherwise not be exposed if that sin did not enter the created order. Now, we don't like that. I don't. I I would think that you don't either. But that's the way it is. But for those of us that really don't like that, and and myself included, I think one thing that that helps soften the the uh, the angst that rises in me with that tension. God's in complete control of everything, and sin exists. That same God sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty of sin to do away with sin once and for all and one day in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns there will be no more sin there will be no more sadness and he has made a way now can we answer all that all the the, the intricacies no but we can say these things but to and I say this very, uh, I try to say this with as much empathy and sympathy and care as I can, but for this kind of tension to scare us away so much so that we don't consider what God's Word does clearly say about God's sovereignty, I think is going, uh, potentially does a disservice for us in understanding the greatness of our God. Now, certainly, God's great because he's a whole host of other things, too. But sovereignty is one of his awesome characteristics. And so we need to not be so scared of dealing with these tensions that we don't consider that. So why would a sovereign God allow sin in his creation? Well, that's our best answer. And other people have answered that way better than me. 
Or maybe you feel this tension. Well, how could a good and powerful God who's in complete control of everything allow suffering into the world? You know, the tsunami or the mass killings. He's in complete con- You're telling me that God is in complete control of everything? That that a hair doesn't fall out of somebody's head without him ordaining that thing to fall out of his head? And a bunch of people get slaughtered or 9/11 happens? How does that one sit? How do we work that one out? none of us deserve anything. I don't, I mean, that's, I don't know if that's kind of the line of what you're thinking. I think that's a little off, but... Why does it have to be what I'm thinking? <laughs> 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 in uh, reading in the book of the week, um, this is the thing that caught my eye. It took me a while to find it. Everything that happens comes about because he either directly causes it or consciously allows it. So everything happens, either he directly ordains it to happen or he allows it to happen and he knows it's happening. He knows it's going to happen and he allows it to happen. And i got to believe that that would be the the sin part that that he allows to happen. Mm-hmm. That he, did he ordain it? that you ordained sin and then the flip side of all that is are we going to be able to figure out from a finite I mean from a a small little mind as ours the, the infinite unsearchable God and why he has done and why he does what he does no so it might be one of those things instead of trying to figure it out just accept it and believe it yeah. and I'm not uh, just for the record, I'm not trying to uh, necessarily figure it out by like figuring it. Figure. I'm not trying to figure it out more than what Scripture allows me to figure it out. Um, I don't think that I don't think that we can figure this out in total. Remember, God's knowable, but He's incomprehensible. Um, I'm leaning heavily on the whole incomprehensible thing this week. Um, he is incomprehensible. He it can be known accurately, but he cannot be known exhaustively or fully, and that's what we're dealing with. But it, it, that that shouldn't scare us from dealing with, at least considering this, because we know that God is still sovereign, even if we don't like some of these things. We still believe that they're true, and I want and I want you, I want God's sovereignty to be commended to you in the face of these obstacles that might be presented to your faith. So, how could a good God and a powerful God allow suffering? Because this is a huge issue if you ever interact with an atheist. How could a good God allow the mass slaughters in the Old Testament and so on and so forth? And what we know and what we can say, I think. Are, runs along a couple lines. God is always working, as we've already said, for His own glory and for the good of His people. Right? He's obligated Himself to those two tracks. Yes? Are we, yes. we all agree with that, right? We also know that God sees and knows the big picture, right? So He can see the end from the beginning. So when your friend passes away unexpectedly from a heart attack in his 50s, 
you don't understand, and I don't understand how that's good. There's no way we can know that. But God does. Because God sees the big picture. He is the sovereign orchestrator of all things. And if you are His child, God has the capability to work through that circumstance, that piece of suffering that you are enduring for your good. How in the world He does that? I don't know. But He does. Because, and that's what he says in his word and he promises to do. But I also think it's important to at least throw this out in our minds. God has not obligated himself to work things out for the good of those who are not his people. God has not obligated himself to work things out for the good of those who are not his people. Now, so any kindness that any unbeliever receives is an act of common grace, the common grace of God. He has not promised anything good for the unbeliever. And that is an awfully scary place to be in. And then lastly, oh, go ahead, sorry. So then, the question that I have about that is, um, I don't know if it's still going on, but I thought, did Mardi Gras end with last Ash Wednesday or something? It was Mardi Gras was right before that. So, I don't know. I mean, I don't know when it was, but it was sometime. I think they, you know, party like crazy. Before Ash Wednesday, and then they stop at Ash Wednesday. But okay. so the the sin and the debauchery that's depicted in New Orleans at Mardi Gras is that something that God ordained or allowed to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Romans nine eighteen. So God is loving kindness for those He wants to. He makes some have hard hearts that he wants to. And it says, but you ask me, why does God blame man for what they do? We can go against what God wants. Yeah, so the... I would say God is in no way obligated himself to that group of people that are down in New Orleans that are partying it up. God would be completely just to to incinerate them in judgment. He owes them nothing. And frankly, he owes us nothing. The very fact that he's obligated himself to working in our lives for for his glory and our good is a huge act of grace. So anything that we have, any working of God on our behalf is all of his grace. And we'll get more to that so then but i want to also say this because like i said that there was this major encouraging thing that we find in the gospel to the issue of sin i think there's also a major encouraging thing about suffering because jesus rose from the dead and when jesus rose from the dead he in that he was the first fruits he was the guarantor of our resurrection as his people therefore when we rise again and we receive one day finally our glorified bodies that are not 
dealing with the junk that we're dealing with, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more sin. That is the hope that we have. So God is sovereign. This is a good thing. How is it fair, someone might say, and we're not going to dive, I'm just going to be right up front. I'm not diving into this this one okay, fully. You can ask questions, but I might shoot you down just for sake of time, and we can talk all the way home, Dad. So how is it fair that God, in His sovereignty, chose some to be His people and some not to be His people? Well, what do we know? Well, if we start at this this one point, and I think the key is, is what's your starting point? But if we start at this point, that every person on the face of this earth, save Jesus, has sinned against God, fallen short of His glory, Romans 3.23, then is deserving of eternal punishment, Romans 6.23. When we start with that, then the what would be fair question is really we all deserve eternal judgment in hell. Even a nice lady like Sally or a punk like me or a piano player like Carol or my little son Caden. Right? Every single one of us is a person that has sinned and fallen short of God's glory and is deserving of divine eternal judgment. We know that for a fact. We also know for a fact that it, that Scripture is clear in Romans 9, Ephesians 1, that God has chosen before the foundation of the world those whom He is going to set His sovereign grace upon. And it's His prerogative. He's the potter, we're the clay. He gets the choice. It also says that chapter, he chose some for his destruction. Yeah. Because he's the creator. Yeah. And I don't like it. I I don't like it. I mean, I don't. But it is, I mean, a a, a phrase that has become near and dear to my heart that's not biblical in in like a, it is biblical, but it's not a quote from scripture. It is what it is. I mean, right? I mean, I got a little sign that I found in Mr. Dawson's closet one day when I was cleaning it out. And and I found this thing and I was like, huh, I need to keep that. And I hung it in my office. I look at it every day and I find myself saying it all the time. It is what it is. You know, life has sobered me into believing it is what it is. And it is what it is, right? But there's something else that we need to realize. Because all that I've said right now, we're thinking, well, what, am I just a robot? What is God somehow, if if God's in complete control of everything, and he's somehow, don't argue with me here, but he's ordained sin in some sort of way, because it's happened. And he's ordained suffering. And he's ordained certain people for heaven to be his people. So am I just a robot? Is it his fault that I'm a sinner? 
And that's where we have to look at Scripture again and we have to say, well, wait, 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 time out. We have to be biblical. We have to allow, we have to allow Scripture to shape our theology, not our theology to interpret Scripture. That can be a problem sometimes. And so we find that simultaneously the Bible presents God as sovereign and man as responsible. God is sovereign. He's in complete control of everything. Yet man is responsible for his sin. Those are two undeniable facts of Scripture. You can't read the Bible and walk away thinking anything other than those two things. And so there's no ten. The interesting thing is, is there's no tension in God's mind. There's no tension in Scripture, in the sense that God gets it, <laughs> and and there's never really any much question. It just is, and and as hard as that is for us to to wrap our heads around, it is something very important that we rest in, with that tension. So how do we deal with this tension? I think we got to be sensitive. We need to be very careful. We need to make sure that we're saying biblical things. I, for one, who love diving into theology and trying to figure this stuff out, I have to guard my uh, enthusiasm that I don't become like a ravenous wolf that's just like so excited. I'm like, ah! God's sovereignty, yeah! And then I'm like this totally stoked guy who is completely insensitive to the fact that there's a lot of people that would not hold my position. I think that we ought to deal with the tension worshipfully. Let me read you a couple things that help me put things in context. Well, I'd love to read the whole of this song. There's a song by one of my favorite guys, his name's Stephen Curtis Chapman. My son's middle name is named after him. You've probably heard of him. He's probably been one of the most influential men in my life outside of my dad and Pastor Kurt and Pastor Dorn. Um, that, like, some people like reading, and I love music, and I listen to music all the time, and I know probably every lyric of every song he's ever written. And he's influenced my theology and my character. And he wrote a song called God is God on the Live Out Loud album. Yes, and the Anchorman. They're second on the list. And I'm just going to read the chorus because the whole I don't want to take the time to read the whole song, but the whole song I would wholeheartedly commend. But the chorus says this, God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God and I am man. So I'll never understand it all for only God is God. And that's the truth. And then the bridge of the song goes into Romans 11. Oh, how great are the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable for to him and through him and for him are all things. Let me read something else a little bit more extended. I've mentioned numerous times that I love Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp is one of my favorite authors. He has a, a devotional book called New Morning Mercies. And on October 29th, he writes this. If you trust only when you understand, you'll live with lots of doubt. God's wisdom is bigger than anything your mind can conceive. 
It's humbling to admit, but important nonetheless. You will never reach true, sturdy, and lasting peace and rest of heart by means of understanding. Why? Because there will always be things in your life that you do not understand. God reveals in his word all the things that you need to know, but he does not tell you all the things that could be known. He reveals his plan for all his people in his word, but he does not tell you his individualized sovereign plan for you. You and I simply are not able to contain in our limited brains all of God's plans for us and all of the reasons for those plans. Now, here's the rub. God created you to be a rational human being. He designed you to think, that is, to strive to make sense out of your life and your world. That is not a bad thing in itself. In fact, it is a very good thing. Your ability to think, interpret, examine, define, explain, and understand is meant to drive you to God. Your mentality is meant to lead you to Him and to enable you to understand His revelation to you. So, and listen carefully if you've been sleeping and nodding off. So, biblical faith is not irrational. But you must face this. It will take you beyond your ability to reason. Let me repeat that again. So biblical faith is not irrational. So in other words, it's not just some mindless endeavor. God uses our rational capabilities that he instilled in us with the image of God. He says, so biblical faith is not irrational, but we must face this reality that biblical faith, saving faith, will take you beyond your ability to reason. Because we're finite. You and I never could have started out at the fall of Adam and Eve and used reason to predict the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross. Old Testament believers knew that God was going to deal with sin and give new life to his people because God told them that this was what he was going to do. But they did not know that the death of the Son of God would be the means by which this would happen. In the same way as we stand between the already and the not yet, We can be assured of all that God has told us in his word, but we can also be sure that there is much that he has not told us about what is to come, both personally and collectively. So there will be mysteries and surprises in our lives. If you and I suspend belief at every encounter with mystery, we will spend large portions of our lives not believing. If we question God's goodness and love every time he acts in a way that is unexpected, and boy, doesn't that happen like nearly every day. Our real-world circumstances collide with God's revealed character. If we question God's goodness and love every time he acts in a way that is unexpected, we will end up concluding that he is not good. If we refuse to rest when we don't understand, we will end up living lives of distress or crazy amounts of stress. So where is peace and rest of heart to be found? You rest in the fact that in his word, God has told you all the things you absolutely need to know. And then you rest in the complete perfection of his wisdom and character. You rest not because you know, but because the one who knows it all is the definition of what is wise and what is good. October 29th, New Morning Mercies, Paul Tripp. I think he nails it. So, if you would indulge me this, in the remaining time we have, I know we, we've dealt 
with a sensitive topic. We've also dealt with some of the most sensitive issues related to that topic. But I would like to do my best to commend the sovereignty of God as being an amazing, amazing doctrine to you. So I want to just tease out some thoughts that I wrote down today. Implications, whatever you want to call it. And I'll just, I'm going to just ramble. And if you could just listen and try to stay with me, think with me, and think, and this is the part of that goal of the lesson. Why does God's sovereignty matter? Well, here it is. So if God is in complete control of everything, He answers to no one. The buck stops with Him. There's no one above Him that He has to answer to, right? Because He's the sovereign. And through Christ, we have direct access, according to Hebrews, to the one who answers to no one. Think about that. When you pray, you pray directly to the one who answers to no one. He doesn't have to go get approval for your request. And we wonder sometimes, well, why are we praying to a sovereign God who's got everything worked out? He plans everything. And that's a difficult question to answer, right? Well, if God's orchestrated everything, then what in the world are we doing talking to Him? Because of this. Because He's in complete control. And we have direct access to the One who's in complete control of everything. It's mind-blowing. You can talk to Him. He has the power. He has the capability to orchestrate the circumstances of life, both personal and cosmic, the way He wants. And we get to pray to that God who is the very able God. So not only does He report to no one, He has the capability to do whatever He wants. And He invites His people to pray to Him, to talk to Him, And He has the power to orchestrate the circumstances of our life. Can you imagine what life would be like if He was not in control of everything? It would be utter chaos and absurdity. You wouldn't even know if the sun was going to rise tomorrow. There would literally be zero hope. God is in complete control of everything, then there's actually real hope for change. For change in our circumstances. There's real hope for change in us. There's real hope for change in our friends and our family. There can be peace and rest. Knowing that God is sovereign, we can have peace and rest in the turmoil of life when things don't change. Why can we have peace and rest when things don't change? Because we know that God's sovereign. He's in control. He's made it like this. He's put all this stuff in motion so that when bad thing number one happens for the day, we know that God has ordained that bad thing to happen today. And that's just number one of who knows how many numbers. 
But if if God's not in control, what's going to happen? What's what's going to stop that bad thing from being so bad that it just goes and it smacks you down? Remember, is is it Paul in one of the Corinthians where he talks about how he was pressed and and squished and uncomfortable and but he's not broken he's not despairing right i mean he was just he was in this like pressure packed situation but yet god knew right <clears throat> because god was his sustaining grace his power is perfected in paul's weakness just like it is in us If God is not sovereign, then those circumstances are unbearable. And there is no hope. If God is sovereign, then there must be a purpose for the present difficulties that you and I are experiencing right now. Whether that be relational problems, whether that be job problems, whether that be health problems, whether that just be maybe a broken heart. There's a purpose. If you are God's child, there's a purpose for you. And that is your good. And it is always His glory. Since God is sovereign, He knows every piece, how every piece of the puzzle fits together. Every piece. The pieces when you and I don't know, when I don't know why Mark Hopper, my dear friend, passed away when he was in his 50s of a heart attack? Why his daughter had to be the one that was right there with him? Why did that have to happen? How is that good? I don't know. But God knows. I don't. I'll never forget that when I heard that. And I can't make sense of it. But God can. Because He is the divine orchestrator who weaves everything together for His glory and our good. And the nice thing is, because God's sovereign, I don't have to know how all those puzzle pieces fit together. I don't have to know how it's good for me, for Natalie, for Bonnie, for Joy, for Georgia, for all their family, how Mark's passing was good. I know it was good for him. I know he's up there. And he probably gets to hear God sing some of his songs, which is even cooler. But I don't know how that's good. But I know that I don't have to know because I know the one who does know. Since God's sovereign, I know that not a single thing happens by chance. There's nothing that happens by dumb luck. If you win the lottery, you don't win the lottery because you're lucky. As stupid as playing the lottery might be, even if you win, it's God-ordained it to be. That means that there's no mistakes. It means what I'm experiencing right now, in this very moment, is not a mistake. Our lives are never out of control because they are under the sovereign controller. 
even though if you and I are humble enough to admit it, our lives don't feel very in control most of the time. When lightning hits our house and then you're living in a hotel and then someone else's house and then you move back into your house and then you find ice in your attic, you feel like life's a little out of control. Can I get an amen from the Pantelis? <laughs> <laughs> you forgot the extra three people. And, and the 15 people and the code violations in Allen Park by the Pantelis. Knowing that God is sovereign, we know that He will even work for the good of His people through their sin and suffering. Folks, He is that sovereign that when we defy Him to His face, by either not doing what we should be doing or by doing the very thing he condemns. God, even through that, he is that gracious to us that he will take our sin and our smacks in his face and our rebellion and he, and he will turn those things with his disciplining hand and he will weave those in to the tapestry of our hearts and he will take what is ugly and he will make something beautiful. God is sovereign. You see, God's sovereignty is amazing. And because God's sovereign, we should fear Him. We should be in awe. Because God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And even though we don't like to think of God and our relationship to Him as fear, it's a healthy thing. Because He is the God who has made all things. He is the potter and we are the clay. He's the creator. We're the creation. We should obey because He's sovereign lest we incur His fatherly discipline. Because when you read Hebrews and you hear about His discipline, I really don't want to deal with that. I'm just being honest. It does not sound pleasant. And if I didn't want to get beat with a belt by my own father I certainly don't want to encounter my heavenly father's means of discipline because he's got a lot more stuff at his disposal he has because he is sovereign the authority so he not only has the power to do stuff but he has the authority the right as the sovereign ruler to demand my allegiance and obedience. Because He's sovereign, I have no reason, no reason at all to worry. And that's a hard one for me. I'm a professional worrier. (laughs) Because He's sovereign, He can be completely and wholeheartedly trusted because remember, He is in complete control. Not incomplete control, not partial control, not half control, or even seven-eighths control. Not fifteen-sixteenths of control. He is 100% in complete and utter control of everything. There's not 99% that He's in control of. Everything falls under His sovereign ordination. Therefore, he can be completely and wholeheartedly trusted when our lives are flipping out. 
He knows because He's sovereign exactly what we will need and He will provide it at the right time. Because He's sovereign, we have purpose inherently built into our lives. Because His purpose is for His glory and our good. And we are sovereignly given a purpose for our lives, right? To live for His glory and our own good and the good of other people. We have purpose. God's sovereignty keeps us humble, doesn't it? Whoa. Our God is in the heavens. He is in complete control of everything. I am not in control of anything. If we're being honest, we're not in control of anything. My 36 years of life have already taught me that. We're not in control of anything. There's always hope of salvation because God is sovereign. Think of the devastating description of Scripture or or the Scripture gives of the unbelieving heart. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. How is that dead heart going to be made or without being made alive, how is that dead heart going to repent and believe? without a sovereign God infusing eternal life into that person. So if we're left for our own choice, we have no hope of our relatives coming to Christ, our friends who are lost. But because we believe in a sovereign God, there's hope of salvation. Because there's a sovereign God, because God is in complete control of everything, there is an explanation for how things work and why things are the way they are. Because the alternative is absolute pandemonium. Can you imagine a life where God is not in control? It would be nuts. The sovereignty of God puts things in their right place. Without it, our lives would make no sense, would have no purpose, and we would have utterly no hope. I hope and I pray that rather than focusing on the tensions that we feel when we consider God's sovereignty, that rather than that be our reflexive response, think, I can't talk about God's sovereignty, that rather our mentality would be God, you are sovereign, you are in the heavens, you are in complete control of everything, and I praise you for it. You are my God. And I cannot imagine life without you being on the throne. We should glory in sovereignty, not be scared, not be freaked out by its tension, but we should glory in it and be thrilled with it. So I hope that I have done my job tonight of commending God's attribute of His sovereignty to you to study and to cherish and to worship Him because of. Let's pray. God, we bow before You and we humbly declare that You are awesome. That You are the God who is in the heavens and You do whatever You want. God, so help us to trust you, to find hope in you that you are in control of everything. There's not a thing that you miss. And I pray that rather than being scared of God's sovereignty, 
of, of, of your control, that we would love it and that we would be encouraged by it and that we would see that our relationship with you is so intensely affected by it that we would that we can't even conceive of it without you and without your sovereignty. So we praise you for your sovereignty, your control over everything. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.